Years ago, when I was in Sunday school, one of my favorite songs to sing was when we all worked together. And I remember in Sunday school, we used to have to grab a partner and you'd, you'd do this little dance with it, which anytime I could dance at Calvary Chapel, I was so excited. But it was when we all worked together, 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 when we all worked together, how happy we'll be for your work is my work and our work is God's work. When we all pull together, how happy we'll be. And that is so true of the body of Christ. When we all work together, when we're all contributing as we're supposed to, how happy we'll be. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body in the edifying of itself in love. When we're all doing what we're called to do, when we're all contributing, whatever our gift is, when we're doing that thing that we're called to do, the body grows and is strengthened and gets edified. The poet John Donne said, no man is an island complete in himself. Oh, sorry. No man is an island entire of himself. Every man is a piece of a continent a part of the main. We're all part of the body of Christ and none of us is complete in ourselves. I have a grandson named Hudson and he's two years old and his favorite thing to say is, I can do it myself. Just like that, I can do it myself. It doesn't matter whether, you know, here's a bite of ice cream, I can do it myself. You know, and he wants to grab the spoon. It doesn't matter if it's crossing a parking lot. I can do it myself. And you're like, no, you can't. You cannot do it by yourself. We were out at the playground and he's on the bars and he's stuck and he can't get down. So I go over to help him and he goes, I can't do it myself. You know, and he's batting me away. And his brother in the meantime, you know, he's four. So he jumps on the, the climbing apparatus and then he's off to the slides. And Hudson is looking at his brother on the slides, just like, I gotta get there. But he won't let grandma help him. And I keep trying to help and he's getting frustrated and he's kind of swinging around upside down, but he, he can't get his left leg off. It's like hooked onto this one bar and he can't figure out how to get his left leg unhooked from the bars. So there he is, you know, no matter which way he goes, that left leg is like, go ahead, I'm, I'm staying here. And I'm going over like, Hudson, please let me help you. I can do it myself. Hudson, grandma's really good at these kind of things. It's called extrication. I'm so good at this. And he's like, I can do it myself. So finally, he's getting so frustrated and his brother now is moving beyond the slides. And I just picked him up, took him off and set him down. And he was so mad at me, he batted me a few times and then ran off to the slides. But you know, we can't do it ourselves, can we? The truth is that when we try to do it ourselves, it ends in frustration, anger, delay, takes longer than usual. And we're missing out. But so many times, you know, we're just like Hudson. I can do it myself. When it comes to our trials, when it comes to our spiritual growth, when it comes to these areas in our life, we think we can do it ourselves. But the truth is we need each other. We need the whole body of Jesus. In John 17, as Jesus is interceding, for the believers, he prays five times, 
that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would work together. We need the whole body, what every part supplies. In Proverbs 18.1, Solomon wrote, a man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment. We need each other. From the beginning, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he made a helpmate comparable to him. God knew it was not good for any man, any woman to be alone. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and Luke chapter 10, verse 1, we see that Jesus sent the disciples out in twos because we need the strength of one another. Ecclesiastes says that a threefold cord is not easily broken, and two are better than one because they have a greater reward for their labor. Paul worked alongside people. He didn't work above them. He worked with them and beside them. In 1 Corinthians 16.10, Paul writes this concerning Timothy. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Paul didn't write, Timothy's my boy. (laughs) He's under me. So accept him because he's under me. Or he works for me. Paul says his work is equal to mine. We work alongside each other. When we work together as a body, it brings companionship, comfort, courage, community, camaraderie, correction, commendation. We'll be going over each of these. So if you just wrote down seven C's, you're safe because we'll fill them in as we go. And camaraderie, what a weird word. I kept spelling it wrong and my Mac kept going, you are so bad at this word. It's like camera and then dury. But this is what the body of Christ brings to us. This is just some of the benefits. And in Acts chapter 18, we see the benefits to Paul, the gospel, and the ministry through the community of Jesus Christ. First of all, we see companionship. As you remember, Paul had been alone in Athens. He had been sent there from Berea after an outbreak of hostility against him. Before Berea, he had been in Thessalonica, and he had been there, or Thessalonica. He had, if you're Greek, say Thessalonica. If you're not, just say any way you want, because I don't care. But he had been there for only three weeks. And he had been concerned about the believers there because he had just left them. There was um, a riot there. They had taken a security deposit from Jason. Paul couldn't stay there any longer. So he sends Timothy and Silas after Berea back to Thessaloniki to check on the people there. Paul had become a liability to that church. Later, he would express to the Thessalonians that he desired to return to them, but Satan hindered him. Now, just a quick side note. Satan hindered Paul from going back and comforting the Thessalonians himself. So Paul did this. He wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, or two letters to the Thessalonians. 
And in those two letters, you have the clearest teaching in the New Testament on the rapture of the church. You know, God has a way with satanic hindrances, doesn't he? What Satan means for evil, God means for good. Without those books of the Bible, we wouldn't have this clear teaching. And think, if Paul had gone to Thessalonians, uh, sorry, Thessaloniki, if he had been able to go, the Thessalonians would have been edified, right? And they would have died with that edification. But because Paul couldn't go, he wrote these two epistles. And what happens? For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been edified, built up, instructed, and given revelation and understanding through these two epistles. So whatever Satan means for evil, if you are in Christ, it's going to turn to good. God is going to use it for glory and do something incredible to the point that Satan's like, why do I even try? That's where I'm hoping he gets with me. Why am I even trying? Let's just give up on that girl. Yes. So I'm hoping. Paul had been in Athens and he preached at Mars Hill, the marketplace and the synagogue. After this, he traveled south to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very, very wicked city. It was what you might call a sailor's city. There was a pagan temple to Venus or Aphrodite at the top of this hill. And prostitutes would come down every night into the town. And it was considered like a spiritual act to um, fornicate with one of these prostitutes. And that was, you know, that was, if that's your spirituality, imagine what's going on. Imagine the diseases that were rampant in Corinth. What happened is Corinth had an isthmus. It was a, this little uh, landmass that wasn't very big. And so a lot of the ships, instead of trying to go around the Cape of Greece, they could go through this isthmus. And what happened is there would be these trailers. So they'd, put, they'd hoist the boats on these trailers. And then they would have these slaves that would take the boat by these trailers across the isthmus. And that way... The sailors would miss the storms because the Cape was very treacherous. So it was a very popular city with sailors. And so it catered to these sailors. It catered to these men that are away from family and home. So it was open to all sorts of vices. And this is the place that God called Paul. It's a very pagan city. Uh, the Olympics used to be held there. And, and as we know, the Olympians were naked. It was a very, very wicked debauched city. And so Paul finds himself in this city and he goes into the synagogue and he begins to reason with these people. Now that word reason is a Greek word that means he begins to dialogue or to ask them questions and to get their response and then to give a response back. In Peter, he says to be ready to give every man an answer for the hope that lies in you. That, that answer is also, um, can be translated, a reasoned response, an intelligent answer. So Paul's there, and he's just reasoning. He's, he's setting the basis for, for preaching Jesus Christ. But at this time, he's kind of introducing them. This is what I believe. This is what the scripture says. But he's not pressing them. You don't see that passion that Paul usually has. So why he's in Corinth, he's, he finds Aquila and Priscilla. 
Now they're tent makers by trade and they've been deported from Rome because they're Jews. So they felt the sting of rejection. And Paul joins them because they're of the same trade. Paul is also a tent maker. And you see in that this companionship. I love the way God brings us companions. Isn't that amazing? That God cares about our loneliness. That God brings us companions that are like-minded, that usually have gone through a similar experience to ours. Here's Paul. He's with tent makers. He's like, you make tents and I make tents. I was in Northern California and I was doing this retreat and this adorable woman picks me up from the airport. Her name is Nikki. And you know, you kind of just love people on sight. And it was one of those things. So we find out we're the same age. We've been married the same number of years. She has three boys and two girls. I have two girls and two boys. It's so close. Our kids are like the same age. And then we started this thing. And I said, you know, I crochet. She goes, I crochet. Well, I crocheted Afghans for each of my kids. I crocheted Afghans for each of my kids. Really? I knit. I knit too. I'm like, really? And like, we had gone through the same silk embroidery phase. We had gone through the same quilt in a day phase. At the same time, we had both, you know, French braided our daughter's hair like Little House on the Prairie when that was in. You know, we had all these similarities. And it was so exciting. It was just this this fun stuff. I mean, she'd come out and I'd be like, I'd wear that outfit. And she'd go, I'd wear that outfit. It was like, yes. I mean, it was just like, she'd say something. I'd think, that's what I'm going to say. It was just this shared companionship. It was so neat. You know how you instantly bond in the body of Christ. I find some of my best bonding times are at the work parties. I love those work parties. There's something about working together, isn't there? That, That just bonds you. You know, as it says, when we all work together, how happy we'll be. And I think of Paul sitting with Aquila and Priscilla, sewing that rough skin, because they were usually made out of goat skin, these tents, you know, trying to get that needle through, you know, that, that goat skin and sewing these seams that would be water resistant and putting these, you know, cutting that fabric and putting it together for these tents. And I think of the talking that would go on because you know, as as you sew, you just have that, that time in the movie gone with the wind. There's this part where Scarlett, cause I don't think she could do anything else. You know what I mean? She's reading a book and everybody else is embroidering or sewing or, or doing things. I just, I love that picture of just us working together because there is that bonding that happens, that companionship, and how desperately Paul needed companionship. He's left Silas. He's left Timothy. He's alone in this pagan foreign city. He's going into the synagogue. He's at risk. It's a very, very dangerous place. It is more dangerous than any other place he's been. Because of the caliber of people that are there. Sailors, rough men. But he's got this companionship. I know when we lived in London, my favorite day of the week was Sunday. It was like Sunday just brought it all together. Why we do what we do. Why we're in this city. It just brought it all together. And to go there, we'd have a coffee pot 
and you could have coffee or tea. We knew where we were. Before you went into the sanctuary and it would be there when you walked out. And we would all just congregate. We were so excited to have each other as the body of Christ. We were an oasis in this pagan city. Later, we got an office in town and people would just drop in constantly because they needed the oasis. And that's what you see. You see this companionship here in this city. Paul is not alone. He's with Aquila and Priscilla. Like Paul, they had felt the sting of rejection. Paul had been ousted from Thessalonica. They had been ousted from Rome. Again, that similarity of experiences, that when you share. Again, when I moved to England, I was scared to death. I didn't speak English. I spoke Californian. I was so afraid I'd say the wrong thing, and I did. I continuously said the wrong thing and shocked all the people in England. Uh, One of the things you don't say is pants because it means underwear there, and here, of course, it means like jeans. And I got up and talked about a woman I knew who was wearing hot pants, and I sent everybody at that luncheon into like, (gasps) you know, I mean, you look at the expression like, okay, I said something really, really bad. I said something even worse, but I couldn't tell you up here what I said because it was so bad. And I remember looking at Nancy Sylvester and she looked, I'd never seen such a look of shock and amusement on one face. And as I looked at her face, I suddenly realized what I had done and went, oh my goodness. I apologized profusely to everybody. But I remember meeting Nancy and just the commonality that we had together. You know, Dave and Brian are so much alike. And we both had similar backgrounds. She's the child of missionaries. I'm the child of a pastor and his wife. And just, we had both grown up so pure and married men with testimonies. We both had that in common. Our parents had stayed married, but our, our spouses both had divorced parents. And it was just, we had this commonality in our fellowship. And it was just comforting. It was, I I would call her and she would call me and we would pray for one another. And that's what Paul had with Aquila and Priscilla working together, making tents. They provided for Paul. It gave Paul an opportunity to make money, to provide for himself why he preached in Corinth. Perhaps they talked about Jesus. Perhaps they interceded together and prayed for this city of Corinth, why they work together. Paul would mention this couple in two of his epistles and express his love for them. Aquila and Priscilla were a remarkable couple. I especially like the fact that they're always mentioned together. You never get Aquila by himself and you never get Priscilla by herself. They were a unit and they ministered and worked together. I love that. Paul would later say in Romans that they risked their necks for him, that they had fellowships in their home. They had become very close with Paul, so close that when Paul left Corinth, they went with him. And they remained in Ephesus while Paul traveled back to Antioch by way of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the believers in those places. The next thing that we see by community the community of Christ, is comfort and courage. Paul, as was his custom, 
We read in verse four that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so there he is persuading or reasoning with them until Silas and Timothy arrive and something is stirred by their coming. We're told what this is. Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that he was filled with anxiety. He was concerned about the Thessalonians. Remember, three weeks, persecution had arisen. In fact, he says to the Thessalonians, you received Jesus under great affliction. And I believe Paul is wondering, can they stand? Will their faith make it through? Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13. And he talked about the gospel being a seed and going in. But he talked about the one reception where it sprouts up. But when persecution arises for the sake of the gospel, it withers up and dies. And I think Paul was praying, oh Lord, let their faith go deeper. Let it be deeper, deeper. And so he sends, or he, Silas and Timothy from Berea, he sends them back to Thessalonica. And there they begin to minister and establish the Thessalonians in the faith. And they bring back this report. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to, let, <laughs> to leave me in Athens alone and send Paul and Timothy with the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly designed to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you and by your faith. So we see that Timothy and Silas brought a word of comfort to the Apostle Paul. Would you think someone like Paul would need comfort? He's so strong. He's so invincible. He gives the word of God. What does that say to you? That even Paul needed a word of comfort. He needed to be told that his work was not in vain. That the Lord was with him. It's been a really tough two weeks for me. Really, really tough. And last week, this woman came up to me with a bag. And she said, I feel rather foolish giving this to you, but I just feel like God told me to give this to you. And when I got home, actually, when I got to the office and she was out of sight so I could open it up, I wasn't very good with Christmas presents either. When I opened it up, there was the cutest polar bear, a stuffed polar bear. It's the cutest thing. I have it on my couch downstairs in my family room. And she told me every time I miss my dad just to grab it and hug it. It's been well loved the last two weeks. And I just think, you know, how precious to think of me. Because I can look so strong up here. Of course, I'm pretty honest, so you know I'm not. But I can, you know. But you know, we all need comfort, don't we? We all need to be told it's going to be all right. We all need to know that our affliction is bearing fruit. That God is using even the tough times to bear fruit, don't we? So we need to be comforting one another. We need to exercise that gift of comfort. You have not gone through the trials you have been through to keep it to yourself. 
to say, I'm a survivor. No, you have gone through those things to receive a revelation of Jesus Christ to pass on to another sister in this fellowship. Somebody needs your story. Somebody in this room needs your story. You're not an island. Somebody needs your story. You're going to bring comfort to somebody here. Paul is comforted. Then when Timothy and Silas arrive, Paul is constrained by the Spirit. That means he is literally compelled, urged, pressed. He can't help himself now that Silas and Timothy are there. He's going to press those people This Jesus that I've been telling you about, you need him. Because there's this sense of I'm not alone. Aquila and Priscilla, we're not alone anymore. Team Jesus has arrived. And it's time to proclaim boldly this message. Paul no doubt knew that opposition would arise as soon as he began to press these people. And that's exactly what happened. When he began to press, opposition arose in the synagogue. He shakes off his garment and says, you know, that's it. I'm done with you. Justice, who is a Greek, who actually his name is Titus the Just. He opens up his house, which is right next to the synagogue and says, come in here and bring this news. Which brings us to the next part. Here is a growing community. And in this community, somebody has the gift of hospitality. You know, what does justice do? He simply opens up his home and says, meet here. Maybe you don't feel like you have any giftings, but you can always open up your heart to let someone come in. Or you can open up your home, which is what justice does. You've got Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. He's saved and his whole household. What is Crispus? Contribution? He shows up. He gets saved. Now, there is something so elating about someone getting saved, isn't there? You're like, you're saved? Tell me your testimony. I absolutely love testimonies. I love to hear how Jesus draws people in. When we lived in Vista, I could tell you the testimony of every single usher in our church. One usher got saved. Brian had this thing that on Tuesdays, he decided to go door to door witnessing. I was not an Aquila or Priscilla thing then. I let him go alone. Go ahead. I'm not really into that, but he went door to door and you wouldn't believe the fruit that came out of it. But one of them was this man named Doug who lived two doors down, who received Jesus Christ and started coming to our church and, you know, Now he's one of our dearest friends. He's been walking with Jesus for over 20 years. But I could tell you Doug's testimony, how he was in Vietnam, what God had done. There was another young man, and I'll I'll never forget when he got saved. I got this call from Joey Buran that Brian um, wouldn't be coming home right away, that he and Brian needed to go on an emergency call. And they were called out. This girl had called and said, look, my brother just OD'd on cocaine and he might die. Can you go to his house? So Joey and Brian went to this guy's house. They laid hands on him and they began to pray for him. They prayed for him all night. He accepted Jesus. He was saved and delivered, but he had $10,000 worth of cocaine in his house and together they flushed it away and praised the Lord. 
And they prayed protection over him and those drug dealers never came after him. And he was one of the members of our church. He even became the uh, worship leader for a Sunday school. You never know who, you know, is who. (laughs) Just amazing testimonies. Yeah, I remember his first Sunday at church. We're like, "Ah!" you know, it's just like so excited. We're all like, "Mm." you know, we're all loving him. Come back, you know, just receiving him into the body of Christ. Justice received Crispus into his home, into his heart. So we see the sense of community. In this atmosphere of community, those who are in leadership can often feel a grave responsibility for the body of Christ. My mother used to say that she went around feeling responsible for everybody. And I'll tell you, ever since Brian became the pastor, the sense of responsibility is tremendous. I tell him, don't you dare make a mistake. Just kidding. I'm feeling it too. Sometimes I feel like I'm walking around with a great big bullseye on my back. I literally do. I feel vulnerable all the time. But this is the good news. The Bible says that we are all sinners, homartia, which means we've all missed the mark. That means everyone's missing as they shoot at me. So that's a good thing. (laughs) Nobody can hit the bullseye. But you do have this sense of feeling so responsible for everybody. So now remember how Paul felt so responsible for those in Thessalonica, for them to be established, for them to grow. Now you've got Crispus, he's just been saved. You've got justice that is saved. But you've got these angry Jews who are blaspheming. And Paul is concerned. But he's in this community of believers. And that night we're told that the Lord spoke to him in a vision. And he said to him, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to grow this community. It's going to get even bigger. And you don't have to be afraid. It was a very dangerous thing to proclaim the gospel in such a pagan, ruthless city. But Jesus himself was promising his presence, his protection, and his prosperity to Paul that there would be many, many more who would come to faith in that city. We all crave a sense of community. We do. It's, it's something that is in us. We crave a sense of belonging. This is where I belong, where we are known, where people know our name. They know our situation. They know our difficulties. We crave a place where people are praying for us. Isn't it the greatest thing to call your leader and say, pray for me? Put me on the prayer list. To know that people are praying for you. Sometimes can't you just feel it? You're thinking, who's praying for me? Someone is praying for me because I feel it because I'm not naturally this nice. And you just know, this is not a usual reaction for me. Somebody's praying. You just feel it. You know it. We need a place where we are being strengthened in the faith. But it's got to be that sense of community. We're all coming together for the shared goal of glorifying Jesus Christ and being glorified by Jesus Christ. We're coming together to encourage, to edify, to be there for each other. That's the sense of community. Sometime after this vision and promise from the Lord, the Jews rise up with one accord. But Paul had been prepared for this. 
And the Lord had spoken to him and said, you will not be harmed. And they grab Paul and they take him before the judgment seat of Gallio. No doubt the believers are praying. You know, it's especially in times like this that you need a sense of community, isn't it? I'm going to court. <laughs> you always need a sense of community praying for you anytime you're going to appear before the magistrates. But the situation, I believe because of prayer, turns against Paul's accusers. The ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, perhaps the one bringing the charges against Paul, is taken and beaten by the crowd. Perhaps that's exactly what he needed to be saved so he could be a contributor to the Corinthian church because later we find that he's part of this community. Later we find that it is Paul and Sosthenes that write the first letter of correction to the Corinthians. What a great God we serve. What miracles are done in the community of Jesus Christ. Next comes camaraderie. When Paul decides to return to Jerusalem, Priscilla and Aquila travel with him as far as Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, Paul goes into the synagogue and reasons there before sailing for Caesarea. You know, it's so wonderful not to be alone. You know, just to have somebody walk with you, stand with you. You know, I listened to a sermon by a pastor. And it was so great because I was listening to it on a Tuesday. And it was on the gift of silence. And he talked about as a young pastor that he hated lulls and pauses. And of course, when I heard that, I was like, oh, that could be me. You know, if the phone goes quiet, I'm like, what story can I tell? I I don't know why. You know, some people think silence is golden. I've always thought silence was, you know, a cue that I had to talk. And so here, you know, here's this, this, this pastor, and he's saying that another older pastor saw him just talk, 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 and he said, you know, silence is a gift. And to just go and sit with somebody and just be with them is really the greatest gift you can get. You don't need to talk. And I heard that study on a Tuesday. And Wednesday, um, my father's health really went downhill. And I went over there and he was coming in and out of a coma. And for four hours, my daughter and I just sat with him, mainly in silence. We said a couple things. I love you. You're the greatest dad. I can't wait to see you again with hair. Just things like that. You're gonna be so handsome, dad. You're gonna be so glorified. Your legs are gonna work. You're gonna build again. Everything you've ever wanted to do, you're going to do. I know you're going to fly. Please take me with you when I get there. You know, we just said those things, but mainly we were just quiet. And we just sat there and we held his hands. And we just were silent. And I think of, of Paul. He had things that were weighing on his mind. He had taken this vow. And, and something was waiting on the apostle as he left Corinth. And Aquila and Priscilla, they just go with him. And then they stay in Ephesus. And they go to the synagogue, exactly where Paul had been, just following up on what Paul had been doing. We're told that they opened their house, that when Paul writes the epistle to the Corinthians, he says, 
that Aquila and Priscilla have the meeting place in their house in Ephesus. And so this couple opens up their home and they go into the synagogue. Which brings us to the next point that comes with community, and that is correction. The body of Christ keeps us from false doctrines and from false tangents. In Ephesians 4.14, Paul talking about the body of Christ says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. We are to speak the truth in love. We can never forget the in love. Because you can speak the truth, but if you don't do it in love, you won't be heard and it will be counterproductive. We are to speak the truth in love. So we see with Aquila and Priscilla that when they hear Apollos, they take him aside privately. They pull him aside. That word, taking him aside, that phrase actually means to bring him into their home or into their hearts or to a quiet place. Maybe they took him out for coffee. That's what I would have done. And they just shared with him. Now, this is what I want you to note about this. That they first commended all the good things about Apollos. Remember, Paul's not there. Luke's not there. So who is telling us all these great things about Apollos? These great things were commended which will be our last point, by Aquila and Priscilla. They're the ones who took notice of all the positive things, that he's eloquent, that he's an Alexandrian Jew, which was a place of education and learning and the origin of the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament translated into Greek, that he was mighty in the scriptures. He knew his Bible, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, that he was fervent in spirit, that he taught accurately the things of the Lord. But here's the deficit. But he knew only the baptism of the Lord. He only knew that Jesus had come and been baptized. But he didn't know. I believe he even knew Jesus was the Messiah. But he didn't understand the suffering of the Messiah as Jesus took those disciples, Cleopas, and the other disciple on the Emmaus Road, and we're told that he explained the way more excellently too, didn't he? He started in Genesis and moved all the way to the prophets and through the Psalms, proving that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again from the dead. So this is what Aquila and Priscilla explain more excellently the purpose of the crucifixion, how it fulfills the scriptures of the Old Testament, and how Jesus did, in fact, rise again from the dead. And what happens? Apollos receives it, and he becomes even more powerful in his proclamation. We're told that he vigorously then is able to refute the oppositional Jews. You know, Paul, I think, has just had it. You know, he's shaken off his garment. I've had it. And so God raises up somebody who's fresh and new, like, I'll take him on. Don't you love that? 
Because <laughs> sometimes I feel like, I've had it. Bring somebody young. Or younger. That's not that hard. But here, Apollos is raised up. Aquila and Priscilla did not write him off. You know, we've got so many ministries today that just write people off. Instead of explaining the way in love more accurately, they just dismiss, disqualify, and they don't bring them in. They don't disciple them. They don't explain the way more accurately. They're willing just to let them go off. Oh, they're so crazy. You should have heard what they're saying to me. Well, what did you say back to them? Nothing. Why not? Why not take them into your heart and explain the way more accurately? That's what we're to do as a community. In the book, If, by Amy Carmichael. Okay, every page kills you in that book. How many of you have read that book? Doesn't it kill you? It's like, oh, but she says, I think it's page 28, but I'm not sure. She says, if I withhold the truth from someone, because I care more about my reputation for kindness and love than I do for their well-being, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Ooh. If I'm afraid to correct somebody or help somebody because I, I don't want them to dislike me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. There is a right way and a wrong way to do things, isn't there? We're not to come in with our guns blazing like, you did it wrong. We're to show them the love. We're to tell them all the things that they're doing right. And we're to enhance one another by correction. It's the way we do it and the why that we do it. We're to do it for the community of Christ. And what an asset Apollos became. There's so many young women out there that just need to know the, the way of the Lord more accurately. They just need to know. I remember a woman in our church and you know, we used to in Vista, we were right next to Camp Pendleton. So some of these young girls would come in and, and some of them had raised themselves. And I remember there was one precious woman who would come in with fishnet hose and hot pants. This is the story I told in England that got me in trouble. But um, fishnet hose and, and very short, short shorts. I mean, short, short shorts and bikini tops. I kid you not. And she was endowed. And she would come in on Sunday mornings like, hey, praise the Lord. And she'd want to give everybody a hug. And you're just like, oh. And, you know, somebody came to me and said, Cheryl, you're the pastor's wife. You need to talk to her. And I said, um, you know what? I've got little children right now. Um, I think so-and-so would be so perfect at that. And so so-and-so went to this woman and just said, could I have a word with you? And she said, you have one of the best figures I have ever, ever seen. God has endowed you absolutely beautifully. But your endowment is for your husband that God gave you. And we don't want other men seeing that. Because we want other men to be enraptured with their wives. And honey, I'm afraid when they see you, they might start thinking about you and not their honeys that Jesus gave them. 
And who do you want them thinking of? You or their honeys? And she's like, oh, I want them thinking of their honeys. And she said, good girl. And then she said, you know what? I don't have a mother. Would you be my mother? And this woman said, honey, I would absolutely love to. And such a bond came between those two. And I'll tell you, the fishnet hose and the short shorts were gone. And, and she came and she became part of the women's ministry, Miss Fishnet. And it was just, you know, it, 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 then we made her the modest patrol, you know, because she could do it in grace, having been there herself. But it was just like this amazing story because she did it in love, because she was able to commend what was good. Beautiful legs. Wow. Able to commend what was good. We need to be able to commend what is good. Paul said that we've been transformed in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we may approve what is the good and excellent and perfect will of God. That's part of explaining the way more accurately. <laughs> approve the good. Approve the excellent. And just help with this other thing. Help, bless, touch, and in love. So they didn't write him off. They went aside. They took him aside. They took him in. They spent time with him. Now we see this commendation that Aquila and Priscilla and the body of believers there, when it was time for Apollos to leave Ephesus, they sent him with a letter of commendation. In other words, a letter of encouragement, a letter that said he is a follower of Jesus Christ and he is a benefit and gift to this body. As the body of Christ, we need to commend one another to each other. You know, as we commend one another, you know, as we share, I read the greatest book and it edified me. That's commending an, an author, a, a believer to other believers. As we say, you need to hear so-and-so's testimony because it will bless you. And she went through the exact thing that you went through. We're commending each other to each other. And what happens? We're strengthened by our mutual testimonies, our mutual experiences. You know, sometimes I have these people that mean so much in my life. And when they're leaving because they have to move someplace... I tell you, sometimes I want to send them with a little note with a safety pin, you know, like they did in kindergarten with you, because we were old enough that they sent with, instead of post-it notes, we had the safety pin things because they knew that, you didn't get the safety pins? I think they knew what kind of kid I was. You know, my parents would get them all crumpled up and, you know, they'd be like, Cheryl, what is this? Cheryl, you didn't tell us. Whoops. So I was safety pinned. I think sometimes I even put it on the back so I couldn't touch it in the front. My little notes, it would say, you know. This is what Cheryl needs tomorrow. She's supposed to bring paste and uh, her father's T-shirt. So when we paint and finger paint. But, you know, that commendation. I want to send people and say, these people are so wonderful. Please treat them well. This is what Paul did with Timothy when he sent Timothy back to Corinth. He said, treat him well. This is what Paul did about Phoebe. When Phoebe was going, a woman was going to Rome, he said, she is a leader in the church. She has blessed so many churches treat her like the greatest saint in Jesus Christ. We are to commend one another. We are to build each other up. 
Paul, when he was speaking in Galatians, he said, they saw Christ in me and they glorified the Lord. We are to see Christ in each other and glorify God for what he is doing. Just the other night, I was talking to a young girl and I thought, oh, she needs to talk to Jasmine. So I saw Jasmine and I'm like, you know, she's up here and she's playing the piano. She's looking at me like, and I'm like, she's like, but she did come over and then she realized I'm not as crazy as I look. And I got them together and it was such a great thing. And Jasmine ended up praying for her. And I told Brian, it was such a perfect prayer. It was just like, I I mean, I sat there and I'm like, man, I love Jasmine. Man, I'm so proud of her. Oh, what a blessing to the body of Christ. I feel that way about Glenda too. What a blessing to me. What incredible blessing to work with such incredible women. What a blessing the support board, the group leaders, you for showing up. What a blessing that we get this time to work together. As the body of Christ, we need to cooperate with each other. There's a lot of C's today. That's because my name is Cheryl. With a C. In England, they say Cheryl. But we all have something to contribute to the work of the gospel. The body of Christ is this, that we have church, was never meant to be a spectator sport. It was never meant just to be one person doing all the work. We all have something to give, whether it be companionship, camaraderie, correction. We can just be a friend, a companion, to be available, to work alongside, to explain the way more excellently, like Aquila and Priscilla. We can be like Timothy and Silas. We can bring back good reports. We can comfort others. We can encourage others. We can establish others in the faith. We can check on others. We can help others. We can be like justice and just open our home or our hearts to another believer. We can be like Crispus and just come to church and bring, be part of the family and bring our family. We can be like Apollos and be receptive to correction because there's room for all of us to grow. We can be like the brethren and commend one another and commend to each other those tools that God has used in our life for growth. We are Christ's body. We are his community. And each of you is essential to the work of the ministry. You are so important to the woman sitting next to you. Some of you are sitting alone, so the woman down the aisle from you or in front of you or behind you, you are so essential to me. You're so important to me. Just to come here and see that you showed up is such an encouragement to me. You are such a blessing to me. I can't believe you guys came out in the rain. Bless all of you. I'm so thankful that we have a women's group, that we have this community, that we understand each other, except for the safety pin note, I got that. But for the rest, we totally get each other. When I say I'm afraid, half of you are going, oh, preach it, Cheryl, you're talking to my fears. We know these things because they're so unique to us as women. We're understood here, aren't we? I mean, those men, we're still an enigma to them. Even after 34 years of marriage, I mean, Brian says to me, Cheryl, don't be afraid. Like, that's supposed to solve everything? (laughs) 
you know, don't cry. Oh yeah, like I could stop the waterworks, you know? He means well. He just, you know, <laughs> you don't have that control. But this is, this is the community. This is where we're understood. This is where we can talk as women and pour out our hearts to one another. This is where we're safe. This is where we're understood. This is where we're prayed for. This is where we're loved. This is where we're known. This is where we have a part and a ministry. Each one of you. We are Christ's body. We are his community. We are not to isolate ourselves. That is so important. Don't isolate yourself. You have a message. You have a word. You have a testimony. You have a commendation. You have something to give. Yes, you have something to receive, like Apollos, the way more excellently, but you also have something to contribute. It is so much easier for Satan. Again, the man who isolates himself rages against his own soul. When we are alone, it is so much easier for Satan to lie to us and for us to bring, believe the lies. Years ago, I was teaching a, a college class at the Bible College, and I was teaching a, on all about Eve. It was a 15-week study about Eve. It was really, I loved it. I don't know about them, but I loved it. But one of the things I did is I was talking to the girls um, I talked about how Satan lied to Eve and how Satan's still lying to us. And I had the girls write down three lies that they had heard. I said, go, we've got a week off. You're gonna hear lies this week about yourself. You're gonna hear lies about God. I want you to write down three lies that you hear. Or even if you just think they're lies, I want you to write them down. And I want you to come next week to class and I want you to share those lies. So we get in class and I said, you know, who wants to share? And you know, I'm like, Okay, then I'll share mine because, you know, they were scared to share the lies because they thought the lies might be true. So I shared my lies and they laughed. You know, I'm always afraid that I've got a hole in my clothes. It's just one. You know, and there were other things, you know, and I just shared. You know, I'm always afraid nobody likes me, that they're just pretending to like me. You know, here's, here's another lie. It, and I just shared my, and as we were sharing, you know, they were laughing at my lies. And then... This one girl with tears in her eyes said, I think everybody really hates me. And I think like, I'll never have true friends. And I said, that's a lie. And, and these girls were like, we're your true friends. That's a lie. And then they're hugging each other and everybody's crying. I heard that one, Cheryl. That was my lie too. And it was amazing. And then of course, one girl, always the single girls, I think there's no one out there for me. Like he died when he was 12 and you know, and. You're like, I, I, I heard that lie when I was 13 too. And we just, you know, we were able to share and everyone, and these girls were like, I heard that one, I heard that one. I mean, there was not one lie that like, oh wow, that's a weird lie. No, nobody here. Mm. You know, you're all alone in that. Like, no, every lie everyone had heard. It was, and they begin to minister to each other. And you know what the girls started doing? They started going, that's a lie. It was like so cool. And that sense of community. And we realize we've all been lied to. And as we begin to share the truth with one another, oh, the whole class was set free. I kid you not. And by the end of the class, we were laughing. 
We were laughing and every one of those lies had lost its power and its sting. But you see, when the girls are alone, alone in their mind, not sharing, alone in their atmosphere, they can, you can believe the lie. It can get to you. I'm ugly. My husband's just putting up with me, but he doesn't really love me. You can, you know, this devil's constantly lying. I don't know why it's always like this for me when he's lying, but this is how I see it. But in the sense of community, the lies dissipate. The lie comes to the light and it's gone. We need the community. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he told the Corinthians, take that brother, bring him back into the fellowship. He's repented, now bring him back in. Lest Satan should come and steal him away. For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We need the community. We need to recognize our mutual need of one another. We need to pray for each other. We need to look out for each other. And as we do, as we do this and begin to exercise our gifts, we will be companions. We will be comforted. We'll be encouraged. We'll have that sense of community. We'll have camaraderie, shared goals. We'll have correction And we will have commendation because all men will know we're Christians by our love for one another. Will you stand up, please? We're going to end in a song, but before we do that, I just want to pray a blessing over all of you. Lord, here are your daughters. Lord, each one of these women in this sanctuary are absolutely adored and loved by you. Lord, it was for each of these women that you came and you suffered and you died. That you might save them. That you might take them to glory. That where you are, they might be also. It is these women that you have promised to deliver from every trial. From every pain. From every device of the enemy. Lord, these are your precious ones. These are your saints in whom is all your delight. Lord, we want to esteem one another as daughters of the mighty King. We want to look on each other with love. Lord, we want you to stir up the gifting that you have given us. And if you have a gifting and you want God to stir it up while every eye is closed, I want you just to raise your hand and say, Lord, stir that gifting up in me again. So as our hands are raised, Lord, as we surrender these giftings to you again, we are asking you to stir us up and make us active contributors to the community of Jesus Christ for the edifying of our body, your body, you in love. So Lord, work in us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.